Hello, Internet, and welcome to this episode of Geeks Grading Geekdom, show podcast thing. I am Wes Yahola, and every week I and whoever I can maybe eventually rope in to join me are going to be taking a look and talking about something in the wide world of geekdom and then giving it a grade. That means movies, TVs, books, comics, and whatever else we put our focus on now that week. This week, it's all about comics. This one in particular that has nothing at all to do with superheroes. As it turns out, like animation, comics aren't a genre of storytelling. They're a medium. Any kind of story can be told in a comic book. So they're real ideal for superheroes, absolutely. And it's not unreasonable that the general public mostly associates the two almost as like one thing, but they're not. Over the decades, comic books have told a lot of other kinds of stories besides superhero stories. There have been moments in time when the biggest comic books that were sold were romance stories, often schlocky, predictable, and overloaded with tropes, but they sold and there wasn't a superhero between the pages. Other years, there were horror comics and crime comics, true crime and not true crime, war stories, westerns, fantasy, science fiction, all comic books that sold just great. None of those have ever really gone all the way away. Just ask anyone working at a local comic book shop about them, and they'll point you out to some. So every once in a while, a really great comic book series comes along that has nothing at all to do with superheroes. Sandman was one of those, and at some point, I'll devote some time and attention to the Netflix adaptation and maybe the series, too. But that's not uh, the show for today. Today, I am talking about Fables the comic book series where you already know pretty much all of the main characters, even if you've never laid eyes on a single issue of this comic book. Credits first on this, all right? Fables the Comic Book was created and all of its issues written by Bill Willingham. For almost every issue, the artist was Mark Buckingham, and having a consistent team like that gave this series a sense of continuity that's just rare. You, it's a great thing when it happens, and it doesn't happen a lot that a writer and artist stay together on a title for that long. Over the course of its initial run, Fables won 14 Eisner Awards, which are like the Oscars of the comic book industry, and that's included multiple years of winning Best Serialized Story and multiple years of winning Best Cover Art. So it's recognized by the industry as being really good, too. The primary setting for Fables is modern-day New York City, and the premise is similar to that television show Once Upon a Time, except Fables did it first, and many would say better, and also Fables is still around. So here's the deal with Fables. A long time ago, all of the characters you know and love from fairy tales, and many, many more you may never have ever even heard of, were all forced to flee their homelands, which were being conquered one after the other by a mysterious and insanely powerful entity just known as the Adversary. Even the exiled fairy tale folk, the fables of the title of the series, they don't know the real identity of the adversary, and that mystery hangs over much of the series. When the series begins, we aren't subject to any sort of history lesson, not, not even as much as what I just gave you. Issue number one kicks off with a murder mystery that also introduces us to the setting and the primary characters in just 
easy to digest steps. What we find out in that first issue is this. The exiled fables have settled in New York. Many of them live in a huge apartment building in the city where some of the rooms are bigger on the inside than physics allow, but fables, fairy tales, magic, it, it makes sense. They keep themselves all but completely segregated from the non-fable people of New York, the ones they call Mondays for mundane. That's us. Thanks. Of course, I'm sure you probably know that there are plenty of fairy tale characters who aren't human and could never pass for them. There's talking pigs, for example, who build houses, bears who like porridge, actual fairies, lots of them. Since a lot of these fables also escaped the war and ended up in New York but can't really go strolling down Wall Street without causing a scene, they've ended up sort of double exiled to a farm upstate. This proves to be a constant source of tension between the city fables and the farm fables as time goes by. Now, one of the things about the fairy tales is they're old. There's lots of different versions, there's lots of overlap, and a great lack of continuity. Bill Willingham hits us with this right from the start with issue number one. The murder victim is one Rose Red. If you don't know who she is, welcome to the club. I didn't have a clue about this character until I read up on her after I read this first issue. Turns out, Rose Red is the sister of Snow White. At least in one story. But while she's never mentioned in the story of Snow White that Disney spread so far and wide, the story of these sisters is not actually contradicted in it. In brief, the most well-known tale of Snow White and Rose Red happens when they're young children. They help out a bear in the winter who leaves in the spring saying he has to guard his treasure, and which I guess was safe in the wintertime. I don't know. Then in the summer, the girls help an ungrateful gnome get out of trouble a few times. When they meet the gnome for what turns out to be the last time, he's trying to convince a bear to eat the girls instead of him. And you guessed it. Yep, the bear is the same one Snow and Rose helped in the winter, and the gnome is the one who the bear was guarding his treasure against. So there's that story. Then we can guess Snow White became super beautiful and all that business with evil Queen Grimhild. Yes, she did have an actual name. The Hunter, the Dwarves, and Prince Charming all happened. We have no word about her sister in that story at all. We don't, I don't even know if we ever hear about Rose Red again until issue one of Fables, when it turns out she's been murdered. Uh, I'm going to talk about the first issue in a little bit of detail, but since the murder story spans several issues, this is like me telling you about what I learned in the trailer of a movie or on the back cover of a book. There's no real spoilers, just setting the scene here as it goes along. So as the murder mystery unfolds, we start meeting characters. First one is Jack, yeah, as in Jack the Giant Killer, guy who climbed the beanstalk and stole, or liberated, depends I guess, a magic harp or chicken. It also depends. Continuity, not fairy tale, strong point once again. But he stole it from the giant and, uh, and the giant ended up dead. As did the beanstalk, I guess, since it got cut down. But he's reporting the crime to the chief and evidently only law enforcement officer and detective of Fabletown. That is Bigby Wolf. Bigby, big bad wolf. No, he's not dead. 
for an underlying reason that I will get to. And he's allowed to live in the city because he has the ability to shape change into a human. Just like the werewolf, I don't think any story of him ever said that he was until Bill Willingham. And since Bigby is not only a central character in all of Fables, but also a really, really good character, I will give uh, Bill an attaboy on this call. Not that he really needs it from the likes of me. Bigby is, as a character, a callback to the hard-boiled detective of the pulp stories from the 30s and 40s and the movies about them that came after, right down to him being a chain smoker and wearing a trench coat. And as we find out in the first story, he's also really good at his job. After that, we meet Snow White. She is the deputy mayor of Fabletown and the one who actually handles the real business of running the town. When we meet her, she's meeting with two other citizens, a couple, one of which is in danger of violating Fabletown's most critical law. That being, quote, no fable shall by action or inaction cause our magical nature to become known to the mundane world, close quote. The couple in question is Beauty and her husband, Lord Beast. These are nothing like the Disney characters at all. That's the other thing that Mr. Willingham seized upon when creating and writing this series. Fairy tales and the characters in them are all in the public domain. These are old, old stories, and no one holds a copyright on them. Snow White, The Big Bad Wolf, Jack the Giant Slayer, Prince Charming, all of them are free and open for anyone to use for basically anything they want to do with them. Now, important point here, Disney's telling of the story, the Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs film from 1937, that is protected by copyright. No one but the Big D gets to use that look of Snow White, the name or likeness of Queen Grimhild, or the names and depictions of the dwarves in that film. Same thing with the details of the characters in Beauty and the Beast. That, those depictions are Disney's, but the characters are public domain. Uh, and the whole Fable series is a demonstration, really, of why public domain is important. It allows creators to make work that builds upon what others have done in a way that can be great, as in award-winning, best-selling, culturally uplifting great. Or not, you see the recent horror movie starring Winnie the Pooh. But anyway... In Fables Issue 1, we learn the curse on Beast makes him look less and less human the more Beauty is angry at him. And their marriage is going through kind of a rough patch, which means that Beast, Lord Beast, is showing his unhuman beastliness. This, as you might guess since I just told you about Fabletown's most important law, is becoming a problem. Thing is, Snow White tells them it's not her problem. It's their problem. Not hers, not Fable Towns, theirs. They need to fix it, or Beast must go to the farm that I mentioned earlier. So I mention all of this because this is how we quickly learn how Fable Town works. It's basically a libertarian's wet dream. There are no taxes. Government exists just to handle things like keeping the peace, keeping the secret, keeping the apartments connected to New York City's power grid and sewers such as that. And they are wholly funded by donations from the citizens. Willing donations, not like tax donations. We also learn that Snow White divorced Prince Charming for reasons that are wonderful to read and when they do come up in a story. And as a tease that I hope isn't a spoiler, I'll remind you of this one thing. Snow White, Cinderella, and Sleeping Beauty all got involved with the Prince Charming. I'll leave it there except for one final thing. In the first issue of Fables, Prince Charming makes an appearance and he's a narcissistic asshole but very charming at it. 
Anyway, back to the first story, which again spans a few issues. We also meet Cinderella, we meet Bluebeard, we meet Old King Cole, Blue Boy, a flying monkey, and a host of other fairy tale characters, all living as best a life as they can, given the situation of being exiles. And exiles that in many cases were forced to leave their fortunes behind in the homelands when the adversary came. So some of them are in a rougher spot than others. The storytelling altogether is just excellent. When Bigby is investigating the murder scene, that's Rose Red's apartment, there are several pages with just no dialogue at all. It's all told in the art. We, the readers, see what Bigby Wolf, the detective, sees. And like all great detective stories, all the clues are there for us to see. Everything we need to know about what really happened is clearly depicted. And it's done so well, I missed every bit of it. I missed every clue Mr. Willingham and uh, Mark Buckingham showed me. And in the pages of the big reveal, I went back and com I wanted to compare the art of the flashback panels of the reveal episode to the original ones, and they match. <laughs> it's all there. They did not try to fool us. They did not pull something out of their ass. They just laid it all out. And I had the chance to connect the dots, I guess, like everyone else, but just didn't, or maybe couldn't. I know. In short, the storytelling through both the writing and the art is just spectacular. And all those awards they won, yeah, totally deserved completely. Over the course of the series, uh, Bill Willingham dug deep into the old stories. When researching this show, I came across someone who described Bluebeard as an obscure figure in fairy tale lore, for example. Well, he never was to me. When I was a child, my family had a great set of fairy tale books. Yeah, that's probably a big surprise to you, I know. Each was about the size of an arty coffee table book with just great art, and I loved those books. The story of Bluebeard was featured in one, and that's how I knew Bluebeard. And there were plenty of other great fairy tales in those in those books as well. And they were ruined by a water leak a couple decades ago, and the loss still kind of hurts my heart when I think about it. So moving on. So... If you think Bluebeard is obscure, you're going to meet characters in this series you have never, ever heard of before. But they're all established. Okay, check that. Almost all of them are established. There are a few times that new characters needed to be invented for this story, but they're a tiny, tiny minority compared to the overall cast. And he didn't just draw from Western mythology. Mr. Willingham presents characters from Middle Eastern fairy tales, from Africa, from the Far East, from the ancient Americas, and... And from the good old USA, too. How? Don't think that we don't have mythology in this country. First of all, we absolutely do. Writers of dramatized U.S. history, mostly in the 1800s, wrote stories that many ignorant and sometimes very loud people and politicians consider fact. George Washington never chopped down no cherry tree and then confessed to his old man about it. Betsy Ross did not design the U.S. flag. And Christopher Knowles, who wrote a book titled Our Gods Wear Spandex, makes a great case for how superheroes are modern mythology for the United States. And consider it. Think about it. Ask anyone over 20 or 30 years old in this country to name the character who was sent to Earth as a baby from the planet Krypton, who is super strong, practically invulnerable, can shoot lasers from his eyes, and can fly. Who is not going to name Superman? 
and who's not going to be able to describe, even if maybe can't name, but they could still maybe describe his main supporting characters. The girl reporter, the photographer kid, the great Caesar's ghost newspaper editor, the flying dog, the girl version. We know this stuff. People know this without knowing they know it. And when some of them act like they don't know it, they're just acting because they think comics and superheroes are kid stuff. And they're adults now who have put childish things behind them. But mythology isn't childish. Fairy tales started as good stories to teach lessons. It's stupid to go in the woods by yourself. Wolves will eat you. Treat people nice, or when your stepdaughter marries the prince, you'll be made to dance wearing red hot shoes until you die. That's the old story ending of Cinderella, by the way. You want to know how hardcore the old versions of these Disney-fied stories are? Pick up a copy of of a book called Grimm's Grimmest. This collection is from Maria Tater and Tracy Era Dockray, and it's an eye-opener. One story is literally less than a page long and basically says, a boy was unruly and rude to the point of becoming dead, and his mom still beats his grave with a wooden spoon. I'm paraphrasing that, but that's the gist of this short story. So those are the versions of the fairy tales that Bill Willingham draws on for his characters in Fables, and they are great. All right, but back to the mythology of the United States. Apart from our national creation myths as lifted from history and dramatized, we have an abundance of fiction that has permeated our national culture. Quick question. What little girl got lifted in her house by a tornado and landed in a strange magical land, killing a witch and made some weird friends on her way to see a wizard who might be able to get her home? I bet you probably knew the answer to that question before I even finished it. The Wizard of Oz book is just something we all know, and it's in the public domain. Not, again, to be clear on this point, not the MGM musical with the songs and the shoes that were the wrong color and all the characters meeting the wizard at the same time. That's a creative interpretation protected by copyright along with all those songs. But the original novel, wholly public domain, which is the first reason why Wicked, the book and then the stage musical, even exist. Uh, public domain is also the reason for the whole lot of the characters in the Shrek movies being able to be in the Shrek movies. Public domain is also responsible and the reason for that flying monkey that I mentioned earlier that shows up in the first few pages of issue number one. Something else I mentioned earlier that I said I would come back to and expand upon, I'm going to do that now. That's the big bad wolf and why he's a principal character in this whole series and not dead like the fairy tales suggest happened to him and sometimes just out and out say. Turns out, Mr. Willingham created a very good reason for that, and it comes into play time and time again through the run of the fables. In the setting of fables, it works like this. Humans created fairy tales and the characters in them. In doing so, they made these characters and everything about them real. They exist in a separate world, the homelands that I mentioned, but they are real. And the more well-known any character is in human civilization, the more power that character has to live. This fact in the setting comes into play in the series again and again. By way of example, let's look at Rose Red. Did you ever know about her before this podcast or before reading Fables if you have? I hadn't. Like I said, I had no idea she existed. This ignorance translates into the rose red of Fables being more vulnerable to death than her sister Snow White, who is known by probably most everyone in the Western world and probably beyond as well. Now, rose red 
in Fables knows this. She knows that she personally isn't well-known, and that means she's more likely to die from obscurity. And it pisses her off. It's one of the reasons she lived the lifestyle she did leading up to the first issue of Fables. Without being too spoilery, this concept, which I think is just brilliant, comes up when Jack makes a concerted and expensive endeavor to make sure he remains in the public consciousness or unconsciousness. It doesn't really matter. He needs Mondays to know about him to support his, his immortality. Being known by other fables doesn't count, doesn't work like that. In another story, a very well-known fairy tale character is literally shot in the head by a high-caliber bullet, but doesn't die. This character's head almost explodes from this sniper shop, but it isn't enough to kill them. There are consequences, there's recovery time required, but they don't die, and the only reason is because they are so deeply entrenched in the Mundi culture. We know this character, and even if we never devote a conscious moment to them, just all of us having that story in the back of our brain somewhere is enough for them to survive this otherwise completely fatal attack. This also comes up when we're introduced to witches who appeared in fairy tales and in which their death was not even a question. So if any of what I've been talking about appeals to you in the slightest way, I have some great news. There are over 150 issues of this comic book, and they have all been bound together in trade paperbacks by Story Arc. I just checked Amazon, and the first one, the one about Red Rose's murder and all the introductions and twists and turns and the mystery, is yours for $12.09. That's a really weird amount, but that is what I found. Other stories have titles like Animal Farm, where the doubled exiled fables have had enough and revolt and Orwellian references are just flying all over the place. There's March of the Wooden Soldiers involving Little Red Riding Hood, who is not who she seems. There's war stories telling about the Big Bad Wolves' adventures in World War II. There's Jack Be Nimble, where Jack works to bump up his popularity among the Mondays. I mentioned something about that a minute ago. There's Homeland, where we learn about the adversary via Little Boy Blue's secret mission back to the homelands. There's Arabian Nights and Days, where the fables of the Middle East reach out to the Western fables for an alliance against the adversary. There's the Boys in the Band, where Peter Piper, Joe Shepard, Puss in Boots, and Briar Rose all are members of Blue Boys Band, and they go out on a quest to, it says, free one tiny fable homeland. Fable's initial run lasted 150 issues, like I said. That's about 12 and a half years of fantastic storytelling, specifically from July 2002 to July 2015. But... In 2022 came a 12-issue add-on series picking up where the main story left off, and in addition to that, there is a special where the fable town detective Big B, Big Bad Wolf meets DC Comics' greatest detective, Batman. That's worth reading all on its own. There's also a holiday special called Christmas that's good. And I haven't mentioned the other spinoffs that came from the original run and during it. These focused on Jack, on Cinderella, on the war against the adversary. There's one called The Literals, The Pied Piper and his wife, Bo Peep. Don't tell Woody. The others who married Prince Charming and a whole bunch more. Then They are all just great, like this whole series. I came into Fables late 
I frankly have come into a lot of things I've grown to love late, some that have become my favorites. Uh, after I bought my first few issues of Fables well into the fourth or fifth story, I went back and bought the trade paperback collection of the stories that I'd missed, and I think I now have the full run through issue 150, but to be sure, I'd have to dig into my 30 or so long boxes of comic books, and that would start a whole reorganization of them, and I don't have the 40 or so hours that would take just now. But it would make it easier for me to read Daredevil Born Again in advance of the TV adaptation. So that may yet happen. Anyway, it's time for me to grade Fables. This one gets my first A+. Fables really is that good. There are some individual issues that drag the grade down a little bit, but others more than make up for it. It's like when in high school, if you took an advanced placement course, the material was college level, so when figuring your overall grade point average, a C would equal an A in a regular high school level course. So, yeah, Fables gets an A+. There's really nothing wrong with this series except maybe some hyper-pedantic nitpicking that I'm not even going to worry about. So... This is one I wholeheartedly recommend. At least drop the less than $15 for that first story, and if you can, buy it at a local comic shop. So there we go. That's Fables. As always, feel free to let me know how wrong or right you think I am. If you've never read Fables, and give it a try, and just let me know how you like it if you do. I would love to know. The text line is 901-878-9420. The email address, if you've got something long to say, is mail at drakehallmemphis.com. And again, if there's any topic in the wide world of geekdom you'd like for me to address and grade, please feel free to let me know that too. For now, thank you for listening. I am Wes Yahola, and I hope this was worth your valuable time. This is Drake Digital.